Good morning, Eddie. And how are you today? I'm fine, thank you. And it's a lovely morning. It's a beautiful spring day. We're promised a few sunny days ahead, so what better time to sit outside with a cuppa and a good book, particularly one by today's guest. Angela Buckley's terrific book, The Real Sherlock Holmes, about the life of Manchester detective Jerome Caminada, was featured on Talking Books two years ago. Where's that time gone? And since her work has taken since then, her work has taken her into some of the darkest recesses of Victorian true crime. Her latest book, Amelia Dyer and the Baby Farm Murders, takes us into a shocking world of desperate single mothers and unscrupulous women prepared to do anything to make a bit of money from their unfortunate offspring. And I haven't told Angela this, but I've actually found someone in my own family tree who seems to have done exactly the same thing, except not take it to the the length Amelia Dyer did. So Angela joins us today on the telephone. I'm sitting staring at an empty chair, but welcome nonetheless, Angela. I hope you're there. Hi, yes, I'm here. Hi, <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, can you hear me properly? Yes, I can hear you perfectly well. Thank you. Now, um, first of all, I just in case anybody didn't hear the launch a couple of years ago, um, you've had a fascinating career outside of the world of books. So, so what got you into writing in the first place? Um, well, I used to be a teacher, actually, a modern languages teacher, um, and it was a career I enjoyed enormously. And then um, I gave it up about 15 years ago to look after my young family and um, was, a, was a bit of a loose end, cause I, and I missed my career. So I started researching my family tree, and one thing led to another, and I then started writing articles for family history magazines, and then I kind of uh, diversified into, into crime. Because I, I think I first met you when you were actually um, being very uh, focused on the family history, didn't I? Yes, it's probably about 10 years ago now, and uh, I, I wrote lo- lots of articles on, on family history stories, and they gradually became more sinister. <laughs> yes, so why, <laughs> why, why Victorian crime? I mean, it's, it's all over the television, isn't it? Why do you think there's such a fascination for that period? It seems to be a, such an enduring fascination. It, it, I'm, I'm often quite overwhelmed how interested people can be in, in, in my stories, um, the books and the blog posts. I think maybe because it's historic, it's just one step removed from real life. Yes. Um, and, and maybe that gives us a freedom to be fascinated with it, than perhaps with, rather than contemporary uh, crime. I, I don't read very much about contemporary crime, but, but, but I am drawn to historical crime. And I think that's true for lots of people. Yes, because, I mean, even in the last couple of weeks, there's been some shocking local stories about um, clearly some very wicked people who still perpetrate these dreadful crimes on children. Um, But somehow, when you read about them, as you say, you know, 150 years ago, um, they're just as wicked and evil, but we seem far more comfortable to almost revel in them in some senses. Oh, completely. And the Amelia Dyer story is absolutely dreadful from start to finish. Yes. Yeah, I don't feel guilty talking about it, whereas I wouldn't feel comfortable talking about something similar um, in the in the present day. Yes. Now, we, we broadcast from your launch in 2014, which, as I said, I just can't believe that's two oh, years ago. And that was a brilliant evening. It was up in London. First of all, before we talk about Amelia, can you tell us a little about Jerome Caminada and why you think he may have been a model for Sherlock Holmes? Because I know quite a lot of listeners were really interested in that side of it. Well, he... he to Rich's story, I mean, he was a poor boy born in the slums of Manchester in the, in the mid-19th century, and, and he was actually part of the same community as my Italian immigrant family. And he uh, joined the police force, and he rose through the ranks to become uh, detective superintendent. 
but he had the most extraordinary career. He was he was he was dubbed at the time as a terror to evil doers. He had a phenomenal um, success rate in convicting pickpockets and thieves, um, even child murderers, um, fake doctors, sham air hunters, and he wrote his memoirs at the end of his career in 1895. And it reads like um, a Sherlock Holmes compendium. So he had his own Moriarty, had a nemesis that he, he pursued for 20 years, and they, they had a final deadly confrontation. He uh, solved the Manchester cab mystery through, through his knowledge of chemicals. Um, he, even, he had lots of, lots of really interesting episodes, like there was a cross-dressing ball. <laughs> and, uh, and, the, and the thing was, he was absolutely contemporary, um, with Conan Doyle stories and um, the Manchester Cab Mystery which was his absolute highlight and was reported nationally It's a fabulous was... episode in your book really people should read um, the book for, for nothing else but the cab. Oh dearie, you like that one? Yes. That's just at the time of the first Sherlock Holmes stories so yes. it's hard to believe that Conan Doyle didn't know about Caminada And he was a bit of a master of disguise himself wasn't he? He was a master of disguise, um, regularly donned disguises. He was an expert in deduction, he had had an extraordinary memory for detail. He used to wander around the city of Manchester at night, sort of gathering intelligence. And uh, I always laugh when I say this, but he actually travelled around in a handsome cab. <laughs> it would be wonderful to to have a television program about Jerome Caminada and do some direct comparisons, wouldn't it? It would be fantastic. I think I think it's been mooted several times over the years, but yes, um, yes hopefully it'll it'll come to fruition sometime. Maybe they could do a bit of a crossover with Benedict Cumberbatch. Somebody ought to put that to him. Or with Ripper Street. There's something in there, isn't it there? Definitely is. Yes. Now Jerome has taken you to some fascinating places over the past couple of years, hasn't he? Because I've seen you've done some talks at. Um, Museum of London in some in some quite strange places. Uh, yes, yes, I have been to quite a few strange places. I've done quite a few uh, festivals and 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 other events. The, Man- the Museum of London one was really interesting because it it was a series of uh, overnight experiences in the museum during their Sherlock Holmes exhibition. So my talks were very late and and very dark. Um, in shadowy in the kind of in the in the sort of in the halls and and all the audience were dressed up as Sherlock Holmes characters that was quite bizarre and I also um, managed to lock a tv presenter in a in a in a Victorian cell for the one show that was quite fun yes Um, that was that was great well it's it's lovely for anybody who knows you to see you on the television talking about it as well because you talk about it with such enthusiasm I mean do you feel like Jerome is always going to be there with you now I do, I do. I love Jerome Caminada. I visit his grave when I go home. Um, I'm in touch with his family. And it's funny, actually, because even two years on, um, just two weeks ago, I was giving a talk about my new book, locally here in Reading, not in Manchester. And, uh, and a lady came up to me at the end and said that she was the step, so it's quite complicated, but the step-great-niece of Jerome Caminada. And, 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 and you, these things just carry on, you know, these, these links. Um, so, no, I very much feel, feel that I know him. Um, Almost part and of great the that he knew my great-grandparents, so, so it's, you know, it's fantastic. It's wonderful to be able to yeah. write and, and feel so close to that, to that subject, I think, isn't it? Mm, and yeah, taking yeah. you into these dark places, is that one of the things that inspired you to look at Amelia Dyer? Because she's truly disturbing, isn't she? I mean, certainly uh, her own story is, is very interesting, but also the whole history around baby farming, which I realise I knew very little about. Mm. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's funny working on both sides of the law, really, having worked on a police um, biography and then now working on true crime. 
I mean, it's really with my interest in local history that brought me to Amelia Dyer because I've been writing about my home city of Manchester, but I don't live there anymore. So I wanted to do some local stories from here in Reading. And Amelia Dyer is the obvious candidate because she was so notorious in the 19th century and her victims uh, were found in the River Thames about five minutes away away from where I live now. So, so that's what kind of drew me into her story. She also um, start, I, she started off, she was, um, was she born in Bristol? She was, she lived for most of her life in Bristol. Um, she only came to Reading in the, in the last... Um, yes, carry on. She was, she was born in Bristol, wasn't she? She was, and she operated a baby farm um, for about 30 years in Bristol before she came to Reading. But it was in Reading that her crimes finally came to light. So, um, baby farming in general was something that, I mean, it wasn't just Amelia Dyer, was it? It was actually something that was relatively common. Uh, yes, uh, it was very common in the late Victorian period, and it was effectively Victorian childcare. So it, it was, uh, there was, a, it, there was um, a situation where, where single mothers often gave their children over to baby farmers to care for them or to have them adopted. But it's also important to re- remember that also working parents um, left their children in the care of baby farmers. Yeah, so the, the, word, the term baby farmers is, is a bit of a misnomer, really, yeah. isn't it? Um, yes, it is, absolutely. They were often called nurse, called nurse children, and they were basically farmed out. That's where the term comes from. Um, but yes, it, they, were like, they were like childminders, uh, although they did offer this, um, this opportunity to have your child adopted, um, no questions asked. Yes, and, and in your book which, you know, the, clearly the stories of the women themselves are very sad, aren't they? They're, they're you know, the, the, the pressures they were under at that time in society was... desperately sad for many women, um, particularly the women who found themselves pregnant without, outside of marriage. And, and I was quite surprised at the high number of domestic servants who were involved in this story. But, of course, when they, if they fell pregnant outside of wedlock, they lost their home as well as their job. Yes. So they were completely left um, destitute, um, and that's when they took the very drastic step of having a baby adopted. Yes, and the, the Amelia Dyer was, was a con merchant, really, wasn't she? She was a little bit more than, than just con merchant, because she, she set herself up to be something completely different and fooled these women into leaving her, their children with her. Oh, she did. She, she entered into correspondence with them and she, she offered them a, a, a beautiful, country, loving country home uh, that the child would be uh, cared for with a, a, a mother and father's love was another one of the phrases she used. She portrayed herself as a childless couple, her and her husband as childless. Um, so she offered these wonderful opportunities um, on paper to, to these poor, desperate mothers who wanted something better for their children. Yes, yeah, so, so actually the women who were... you. you, you you sort of had to think that maybe they'd been slightly neglectful of their children, but they hadn't. They genuinely thought that these children would be, would be given a better life. Um, how, did, how did they find out often that, that their children had gone missing? How did she manage to hide this from the parents? Well, in, generally speaking, the parents had no contact with children once they were adopted oh, in right. this way. Many of the parents wrote letters to, to Daya trying to find out about the, their, their children, but she never replied. And it was, it was when the police found these letters that through, through the letters they were able to trace the parents. Um, but at the time, there wasn't really any expectation. If you gave your child over to adoption in this way, which was completely legal, but, but was un, it was informal, there was no legislation or any regulations at all, you didn't actually expect to ever see them again. 
Uh, so they wouldn't have known they'd gone missing, oh, right. except for one or two cases where um, a parent came back to claim a child. Uh, that, that That's one of the problems that Amelia Dyer had. So we don't actually know how many children she may have murdered, do we? No, it, it's likely to have been in the hundreds because she was doing this for, for 30 years. And because there was no DNA testing and no ways of identifying um, the bodies of babies and linking them up with their, their, uh, their biological parents, they couldn't, they couldn't say how many children had actually died. But there were quite a considerable number, even here in Reading, in the year that she was here. Um, so it's likely to have been multiplied quite considerably over a 30-year period. So she's probably Britain's most prolific serial killer. Uh, Angela has requested a Smith and... Uh... talking about Amelia Dyer. There was some suggestion that Amelia Dyer was actually mad. Do you think we're just keen to believe that nobody could do such dreadful things to children? Uh, it's very difficult. Um, she was certified three times into asylums, but people felt that some people felt that that was just a, a fake um, a sort of sham in order to escape the law and there was a huge debate uh, during her trial at the Old Bailey about whether she was whether she was mad or bad because she suffered from hallucinations and delusions and she was quite violent um, 
the jury is still out on that, really. They didn't come to any conclusion then, and it's very difficult to assess it now. I think, personally, that um, she, that she wasn't mad. I think she was. I think she faked it at times, and I think she was. She was a prophet. Children themselves were really just a commodity to her. They weren't little human beings at all. Exactly, and there was a sense that in that time, children, small children, were a commodity. Um, they, you know, the, the infant death rate was very, very high. I mean, obviously families were affected when children died, but there was nothing in place at all to protect children. So it was almost as if, you know, they just were easily disposable. And there was the, the high mortality rate. Um, she could pass these off as natural deaths too, couldn't she, in some senses? Totally, because they're often small children wasted away had to help them and children didn't always thrive. Most family histories... Most family trees have small children in there who just literally wasted away. Yes. And so she used that to mask um, the rather more deliberate wasting away that she caused. Because the way that she was actually captured in the end is because she was actually disposing of the bodies in, in quite the most callous way, wasn't she? Can you tell us a little bit about that? If, I hope nobody's eating their breakfast this time in the morning, <laughs> but it was really desperately callous, wasn't it? Well, they found a number of babies' bodies here in Reading at the River Thames and they uncovered. And basically, she, she, she strangled them with white tape. So when they found these bodies, they had white, many of them had white tape tied around their necks and just knotted under their ear. And then she would wrap them in newspaper and linen and then a brown paper package uh, with a piece of string and, then, and, and just drop them in the river. There's a footbridge uh, across the Thames here and she used to she used to live down near the Thames and she used to walk onto the footbridge and just drop them into the water. And some poor souls had to fish the bags out that, that she'd just left them in, didn't they, and find the Well that's really how the how the her crimes came to light because it was a barge man who found the first package uh, on the thirtieth of March eighteen ninety six. He just spotted a package and when he opened the package he found a tiny corpse. And then they obviously started to drag the river and they found more. But it was horrendous for the police. All the investigating officers were family men. Um, so it would have been very difficult for everybody involved. And the strange thing is she, she did have her own children, didn't she? She did. She had at least two natural children, possibly more. And she did form attachments, funnily enough, not only to her own children, um, particularly after who was nine years old, Willie, who stayed with her. She was incredibly fond of him. She was fond of her cats. But, she, but then at the same time, she could be completely callous. And heartless. Because wasn't there a, there was a hint, I think, without this isn't a spoiler by any sense, yeah. but in any sense, but she, um, that her daughter and son-in-law were involved in the trade as well? Because a trade it was, really, wasn't it? It was very much a trade. It was human trafficking, basically. Mm. And yes, they were involved in the same trade. I don't think there's any evidence they murdered any children. But um, they're both convicted a couple of times, and there's a twist at the end of the involves the daughter. Yes. Um, who, and, who, yes, was very much a baby farmer. And you you get the impression that there were um, serious levels of not just um, neglect, but across the whole of society, it, it felt like you, sort of children's lives were were cheap in a sense, weren't they? They were very cheap, yes. They were, they, they were seen as a nuisance, as an inconvenience, I think, generally. I mean, not always, because obviously no. it's very difficult for some parents to give, give their children away. But if a child was unwanted, they were generally um, just neglected uh, or passed on. or, or, or just. And, and there are some quite shocking stories of women 
um, particularly single women, being driven to quite desperate lengths to killing their own children yes. uh, because they couldn't couldn't manage. You know, to, there's no state assistance at this time, so it was a very desperate situation for everybody involved, really. I mean, as I, I was I was saying just at the beginning there that uh, my paternal paternal grandmother, yes, she would have been my paternal great grandmother. Right. She used to take. I heard that she used to take children in for gin. So basically, yes. she'd take children in to pay for her alcoholism. Fascinating, fascinating. Yeah, that wasn't an uncommon occurrence, really. She no, and she probably gave the gin to the kids, the babies, to keep them quiet as well. That was very common. And opiates. They used to drug drug babies, not just baby farmers, but parents used to drug babies to keep them quiet, just as in the way we give children cowpole now. <laughs> in the vain hope that they'll go to sleep. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's, it's always a hopeless case. Children wise up to it after a while, I'm sure. The cowpole's not nearly as effective as the laudanum would have been in the Victorian No, era. laudanum was so freely available as well, wasn't it? Completely freely available and very cheap. Um, I was a bit shocked when I looked at the history of laudanum which was very common to give to children, um, to discover that it had been reclassified as a, as a Class A drug. Yes, and I mean, that's the, the same sort of thing was happening when I was doing the research for Shellshock Britain, and I was looking at the ways that people had found uh, to cope during the First World War when the bombs were falling around them from Zeppelins and the first airplanes. Mm. And basically, they were all on a, a fairly low level of addiction, just from over-the-counter yeah, medicines, cool. you know, cocaine and heroin and valium probably yeah yes and heroin okay. was heroin was marketed in the late 1800s to rub on children's teeth when they would yeah, yeah, fine. Uh, you're hoping to write some more in this series aren't you and you're you're looking into some more true crimes to to feature in perhaps a, a series of books uh, yes this is the first in a series and so they're meant to be short true crime cases that you can read in a few hours with a coffee um, should, you wish to, should you wish to relax in that manner so book two um, is going to be quite different and it starts with the murder of a policeman on his beat and uh, the investigation is led by an extremely flamboyant he um, he brings the perpetrator to justice very quickly but there is a massive twist at the end uh, which leads to reveals a miscarriage of judge justice and the real perpetrator was a very notorious Victorian criminal. God, it sounds fascinating. When, when do you think that one's going to be ready? Because actually you've hardly started marketing Amelia yet, have you? Uh, well, I'm hoping it'll be ready in the, in, in the spring next year. So I'm hoping to do one a year. Well, that would be fantastic. Because the cover of Amelia Dyer, I mean, people must go online and, and, and uh, sort of check these out for themselves. Tell us of your own, of your own website. Yes, you can find out more on Angela Buckley, that's B-U-C-K-L-E-Y, uh, writer.com. And um, the, the information about the Sherlock Holmes book and the Amelia Dyer books are on there. And you can, you can sign up to my free newsletter if you, if you want to, you know, get more regular updates on what's going on. I'm hoping to offer a free uh, Victorian Super Sleuth exclusive case later in the year, which will be free uh, from the website, which is a shorter, even shorter case. This is the, this, the whole series is the Victorian Super Sleuth Investigates, isn't it? Yes, yeah. Yeah, so hopefully, right. you know, that in years to come, it'll be a bit like collecting Nancy Drew mysteries or something. <laughs> that would be nice. <laughs> Angela Buckley mysteries, that would be fabulous, wouldn't it? Every writer's dream to have a crime series, really, isn't it? Yes, and I'm trying to write them as if, um, as if 
as if they're crime fiction, really. So you start off with a crime, the scene of the crime, and a clue, and some clues, and you work your way through with the police to the invest through the investigation to to find out who the perpetrator is. Obviously, Amelia Dyer, we already know, but I still tried to trace how it would have felt for the Victorian readers uh, finding out the details step by step as the gruesome crimes are uncovered. Yes, because we do, you do get a sense that the uh, newspapers are as, are as sensationalist then as they can be now, weren't they? It's not as if they were only reporting um, straightforwardly. They loved a bit of sensation. Oh, they were more, far more sensationalist than they are now. I mean, the descriptions of the bodies of, of the babies found in the river are completely graphic yes. in the contemporary newspapers, which you really wouldn't get now. No, there's a certain sense of people's finer feelings. Mm, absolutely. And, yes. the, and the police and everybody used the press used to investigate the stories as well, the cases. So the press have got their view and they're having interviews with all the suspects and with the witnesses. So it's, a, it's an extraordinary wealth of, of gives us an extraordinary wealth of information. Um, I, I, I do think that you 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 actually are, are very fair to the police in this one as well, isn't it? It's not as if it's a it's a case where um, you can blame the police in any real sense that she got away with it for so long. No, and the police were struggling with the few resources that they had at that yeah. period, and I think um, I think they uh, they did very well to, to to put this investigation together and bring conviction. Although there is a slightly suspicious bit where where the chief constable um sits on a letter that she writes from prison but apart from that um they they did a very good job and in fact i met the um the family of one of the police officers last night so the great grandchildren which was very exciting yes do hope the listeners have actually had a sense of how how really interesting the books are and jerome caminada and amelia dyer are fascinating characters and you managed to to really bring them alive i think and uh, so I do recommend anybody who listens to this show to please go and check out Angela's website, um, check out all the great work she does as Victorian super sleuth, and make up your own minds about Amelia Dyer and her madness, and whether Jerome Caminada was indeed a model for Sherlock Holmes. I'd like to think he was, actually, because he's so very real to me now. <laughs> yeah, me too. Uh, yes, me too. absolutely. So thank you so much, Angela. Um, and... Uh, I think when your next book launches, the very least we can do is feature that one. If you can bear to come back on again. That would be fantastic. We, it's, been a, it's been a huge pleasure talking to you this morning, Susie. Th- thank you so much, Angela. And um, we'll speak to you again in the future. So thanks, that everybody, for listening. And um, I'll see you in a fortnight. Thank you. Try and sort things out. I'm going to play Big Sir and uh, from the Thrills.